I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of The Bip Show is brought to you by OpenTrader. OpenTrader is Australia's most competitive, self-directed retail trading platform for professional traders and those who want to invest like a pro from only $5 per trade. It provides chess-sponsored trading accounts and award-winning charts, combined with ongoing educational support and training. You'll get full autonomy on how you select stock and detailed info on performance across multiple metrics to help you make robust decisions. Open Trader. Invest like a pro from only $5 per trade. How are you now? You're listening to The Bip Show. Bip is for business, investing and policy. That is what we're here to talk about. I am James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group, uh, and I'm not here, as always, <laughs> unfortunately, with Paul Colgan, Director at C2 Group. But Paul is uh, in a different part of Sydney. We're, uh, we're in lockdown version 2, version 3, 3.0 for myself, but version 2 for a lot of people. And uh, in Amsterdam, Ken Vexler, Director at Acumen Management. Now, uh, we're recording this on Monday, June the 28th, my goodness, 2021. Uh, please do not forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Give us those five-star ratings, please. Uh, go through. It doesn't take long. It really does help us out when that happens. Um, tell your friends and uh, and put some good stuff on social media. We've got some good things coming on the, on, the, on the webpage and on the Facebook page as well you want to know about. Well, here we are, lockdown version, like I said, lockdown version 3.0. For myself, version 2.0 for a lot of people. Ken, it seems like most of the time when I've talked to Ken over the last year, he's been in some sort of a lockdown or another. We're going to find out how that's all cooking over there. Colgo, mate, the BIP show was was born in lockdown. It's it's part of the reason why the, the three of us decided to start this this nonsense and, and for what it's become now. And and, and I I sort of feel almost a little bit more comfortable in, in this in this scenario of doing it, of being locked inside my own house effectively and, yeah. and, and at a microphone, not being able to see anyone. Yeah, it's like mate, going on. Um, how, yeah. are you, how are you How are you? battling through it, mate? And how do you see, how do you see with a finger on the pulse of, of the rest of Australia, as I assume you do, how do you see, how do you see this affecting the rest of Australia? Yeah, look, um, it's this one is, is a bit harder to take, I think, uh, just speaking personally. Um, uh, you know, it's probably to do with having had the taste of freedom um, <laughs> for for so long, and frankly, enjoying it. Um, and uh, going back to so yeah, it's like uh, you know when you go uh, snowboarding. I'm so I'm just going to use a snowboarding sort of skiing analogy. You get back, get back on the you get back on the slopes, and for the first little bit you, you've no idea what you're doing and then slowly it comes back so the whole working from home thing like how do you do a lockdown like how do you cope with it like the whole idea of being cooped up in the house um for weeks on end uh so just relearning all that stuff about you know how to work from home um how to do those meetings properly uh how to schedule your day how to not go bananas um just relearning all of that stuff 
um, been actually good talking to uh, friends and colleagues in Melbourne uh, who obviously have vastly more experience with this because, uh, uh, you know, they've had such a tough time with it. Um, but they've had lots of useful uh, use, bits of useful advice, uh, including one person who said, you know, do this, do that, do that. And then the other thing is drink. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. oh, good. oh, sure. Yeah. Collective, the, the, the collectively kissing of uh, kissing goodbye of dry July was uh, you can sort of hear the big sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah. and everyone realized oh have no, to commit to this nonsense. Yeah. Oh no, dry July is over. Oh well. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Like. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, but look, that, like more broadly, uh, look, we we know kind of know how these things roll now. Um, there is a big difference this time around with this lockdown in that there isn't. A job keeper in place. Uh, there's going to be li- there's going to be government support for businesses, federal and state government uh, pay- payments uh, in the works, um, but nothing of the scale uh, of job keeper. And of course, um, the sheer amount of time that was involved in previous lockdowns. Um, fingers crossed, tapping every bit of wood um, that I can find here in uh, my attic, which is actually the best place to um, record uh, up here because it's uh, nicely soundproof. So, um, but um, uh, yeah, the, hopefully this will be shortish, this lockdown. Um, numbers were good uh, today, Monday. Uh, and the bounce back effect that we got from previous lockdowns was because of Partially thanks to uh, pent-up demand in the form of accumulated savings that people had uh, that they were ready to go and spend um, because um, they couldn't spend it before, right? Um, Yeah. So uh, the impact of that might be minimized. But in the broad sense, the Australian economy is doing still doing extremely, extremely well. Unemployment rate came down from 5.5 to 5.1 in the last jobs numbers. Um, there was, you know, nearly a hundred thousand jobs created um, just from memory. Um, like, I mean, these are big numbers. This is these are the signs of a roaring um, uh, economy. You know, um, uh, the underemployment rate was down. You know, um, the um, employment, uh, the number of people in jobs is thirteen point one million. You know, and like, there's it's strong. Um, yeah. And um, so there's a lot to be bullish about, even though I uh, uh, might be um, pretty personally myself in a pretty dark place at the moment. No, Just like, you know, well, like, oh, well, God, really? In- wanna, uh, okay, we've, we've got, I mean, everyone says there's always someone who's in a... Who's in a worse place than you? And think about that. So speaking know, of which, Ken, how's it? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, isn't that isn't that one of life's uh, little ironies? In that, uh, I think, what was it? As of Saturday, so just a couple of days ago, pretty much the bulk of all uh, lockdown measures and and sort of you know regulatory framework in terms of keeping everyone safe and locked up. It's all been pretty much lifted here. Um, now, do I personally think that's a little premature and a little, you know, ahead of ahead of its time? Yeah, but then again, I'm not, you know, uh, the health minister nor the prime minister here. Things would be awfully different had I been one of those. Um, yeah, so basically vaccination numbers here have really picked up uh, with significant pace. I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but something like, I think conservatively speaking, I think maybe... Well, close to 60% of the population's probably had about 
it's first jab or 60% of the eligible population, oh. maybe about 25 to 30 are fully, fully vaxxed. Um, masks, masks are no longer mandatory anywhere other than uh, public transport. Um, still keep one and a half metres distance, wash your hands, do all that sort of stuff. But life, for what it seems, I mean, whatever normal in this day and age can be considered, seems to be slowly creeping back. But, look, let, again, let's put things in perspective. Like, I mean, I appreciate things aren't fantastic in Australia and certainly hotspots here and there. But, you know, to put it in, in relative terms, we still have, even today, uh, nationwide here, probably in the vicinity of about 600 new cases every day. Wow. Um, so that, you know, I mean, considering what it was, which used to be north of about nine to eight, well, nine or even 10,000 cases uh, a day is, is pretty good news. But, you know, 800 here or 600 here versus, you know, whatever you guys have in Oz at the moment sort of may put things in perspective. Um, but again, sitting, sitting from a distance, it also highlights, at least in the Australian instance, uh, you know, dare I say it, the ineptitude of the federal government. I mean, you know, it, it, we, I remember speaking way back when, probably, I don't know, March this year to, to you guys about vaccination rollout in Australia and the fact that, you know, what's the rush? There, there's no whatever. And yeah, in March, fine. What, what's the rush? But we're now nearly, you know, 1 July and having read, you know, what the numbers are like in terms of vaccinations in Oz, that's pretty sketchy. Like, uh, you know, and, and, what, and what I've come to understand is that, you know, it's a federally mandated policy with a state government level uh, plan for distribution. So it's, it's not even necessarily on, on the state governments. It's, it's a federal issue but to be administered by states based on the federal guidelines. And if the federal guidelines are clearly, well, politely put, lacking, yeah. then, you know, there's only so much blowback you can put on, on state premiers and the like. Yeah. I, th I think that we did come to the conclusion that it is, in fact, a race, um, regardless of, of what someone, someone may have said that it wasn't a race, that it is, it is, in fact, a race. And based on what I saw at Homebush Yesterday, when I, I, I went to, uh, to to get my jab yesterday, and I was actually I'm actually booked originally booked for a couple of weeks away. I went to the went to the website again, hit the refresh button, and I, and I have joked that it's it's just like getting semi final tickets. Um, you know, you've got to go to a couple of different websites, a couple of different sites, get some tips from friends, hit the refresh button. Okay, yep, there's, there's some seats have opened up. I got to get to it, and then you still got to travel out to Homebush and and still walk away with a bit of pain. Um, no, but uh, so it was. It did have a bit of a, a bit of a semi-final feeling out at Homebush yesterday. That a couple of a, a great few thousand people. I've got to say, at least ten thousand people that I saw over the over the course of the three hours when I was out there, um, at least. So they've opened the floodgates on the on the vaccination rollout. Now this lockdown. Looking at a Morgan Stanley note just here. The uh, the lockdown. The direct uh, economic impact of the current lockdown measures at about Australian dollars two billion which is about 0.1% of annual GDP. So that's a real number. Um, that is now, uh, obviously, because it's the, the, the Delta variant, they're saying that it's a bigger risk for, you know, something a bit more detrimental. They do mention the fact that there is less stimulus uh, support coming through um, and that there is limited, and this is the kicker, there's limited vaccine upside. So you guys want to have a guess of what our one dose, what's our one dose percentage for Australia at the moment? What, those that have had a already the first dose? Yep. 
Oh, mate, I, I make you 3 4% as a spread. Probably. Well, we're 20, we're probably. 20, yeah, 25 um, okay. have had at least one dose and only 5% have had two doses. So okay. it's, it's, I think that, that that one dose is sort of, of everyone that I asked, they, they were also low bidders too, Ken. So um, that's, that, it seems like the perception is that we're further behind than we are. Um, we need to be. We need frontline workers, and we need people that are in hot, hot spots that are potential spreaders to be uh, to be sh- shifting that around. We now, need we need everybody to be get vaccinated. We need everybody <laughs> vaccinated. Everybody please. should just get vaccinated, and like particularly like the vulnerable, but like just everybody get vaccinated, and then we can get on with life. That is that is true. We won't have to go through this uh, this think, bizarre ritual just- again. Just to interject, I think we can probably circle back to the notion of it being a race. I suppose when when we, for, you know, later in the show, talk about probably the global perspective or what's happening around the world, I think that's something that very many people are very keen and quick to discount, the fact that it's not a race because obviously numbers globally are, in terms of vaccination and whatever else are, are going fairly well and fairly quickly. But I think too many people are too quick to dismiss the idea that it's no longer a race, and, and, and it is a race between, in my mind at least, uh, the Delta variant and its, and its spread globally versus exactly that, the, the ability to have uh, critical masses of, of populations mm. properly vaccinated. Well, there's a fantastic um, little case study uh, here in Sydney. There was a party uh, uh, yes. where there was, I think, 28 people. Uh, mm. 22. Yeah, it's, it's 30. Th- up. Th- 30, 30 people, uh, six people didn't catch it. Yeah. And they were the what six. What was their common factor? The thing they all had in common, they were all vaccinated. That's right. The other 22 caught it. And Easy. then it was one over. Yeah. So it works. <laughs> it does work. That is true. So it works not uh, just not just in terms of stopping you from getting sick, which is what it's designed to do, but it also, in that case, stopped all six of those people getting it mm-hmm. now uh, more importantly i did think that we were all going to be able to move from being epidemiologists and immunologists and and any other sort of ologists to, to also still carry in our jobs in uh, in in finance but it looks like they dragged us back in to, to, to do this one more round now let's let's talk about some stuff that we are supposed to know about and and is still honestly confusing the hell out of me on this one uh there's no vaccine for the amount of fed speakers that we saw last week 16 in total, uh, the uh, Powell, I think it was at the latter end of the week before last, uh, Powell with his comments about, about the way that they were planning on uh, seeing inflation off or, or, or when they were moving interest rates and also the dot plot also adding to more of this, uh, the craziness. Now, I need someone, if only I knew someone who was adept at cutting through the BS and, uh, and could actually explain what the hell was going on, maybe someone potentially with, with a good experience in in finance, uh, maybe with you know the, the, the sorts of rates knowledge potentially. Uh, do you know anyone, Ken, who might be able to help us cut through the BS and tell us what the hell's going on with with the yield curve, or tell us what's going on with the with rates? Can I find a friend? Or yeah, in, the absence, in, the, in the absence of that, I suppose I'll, I'll give it a nudge. Although I'd be hard pressed to, to believe that I've got any real insight. Look, I think uh, let's let's wind it back a little bit. Um, we had the Fed, uh, the FOMC, a couple of weeks ago, obviously with the revised dot plot. And that's where the proverbial hit the fan as far as the rates market and the yield curve. I mean, we saw the the long end get bid up 
significantly in that uh, yield on the 30-year. Well, for, without without being too you know hyperbolic about it, it it did really move like significantly so that the yield came off massively. We had a flattener in that case. Uh, the the belly also came off, although probably not as dramatically. And it's all because there was sort of an affirmation on those in that dot plot of uh, when the Fed perceives uh, the first rate hike to be coming, and and you know confirming. And, and this is the odd bit. It, it sort of pretty much confirmed what everyone had already assumed in that the hike wouldn't be before sort of end of 23 or thereabouts. Uh, and yet we, we saw this reaction in the curve. And to me, honestly, uh, it spoke of nothing more. And maybe this is far too simplistic, but then again, I'm not exactly a complex human. Uh, it spoke of nothing more than uh, a positional washout in that everyone had been so geared up for this, had positioned for it accordingly and realized that there was probably no more, or in fact, there was no more juice in that particular trade. And it was just a case of getting out of that position and out of that trade before the next bloke. And so that sort of, you know, created the the, the momentum that, that really, exas- you know, exaggerated, I think, the move that we saw. Since then, you know, the belly settled down and we're, we're sort of back to-ish around where we were prior to prior to that Fed meeting. The back end, uh, the 30 years, did, nah, probably recovered, maybe not, not, as, not as well, but it, it's on its way. And so we're, we're back to sort of where we were. Uh, and to me, before we get into what the Fed speakers did or didn't say, subsequent to the meeting, to me that speaks of the curve where it is being fair enough. You know, it, it's representative of where things should be and, and, and maybe the market finally actually taking note of what the Fed is genuinely saying and its new framework. And what it's saying and has been saying for God knows how long is that their average inflation targeting, which means that they'll run it hot. Uh, how long they let it run it hot for remains to be seen. But, you know, the law of mathematics as an average means you've got to print over, uh, not just under to, to achieve that average. So, um, and, and we are also subsequently seeing inflation prints coming off the the initial, you know, stellar high prints that were very much expected because, I mean, you had base effects, you had reopenings in the States and the like. It's obviously that was going to lead to higher inflation prints. I'm not going to get into the whole argument or conversation about whether it's transient, transitory, what it means and the like. I think what we are generally going to be experiencing is a curve not dissimilar to where it is now. There will be fluctuations here and there based on various data points and prints, uh, various bits of rhetoric out of the various Fed uh, speakers. But on the whole, I think the US economy is sort of, you know, trudging along as it should be. Um, I don't think, I think the key the key point to, to understand, at least from my perspective, is mm-hmm. the following, that I still believe that inflation as we understand it, uh, or higher inflation as we understand it, Will and is, will be and is transitory. I think uh, the only caveat to that is that the various prints uh, giving us an understanding that you know, oh my God, there's inflation. I think those prints are generally going to be and have been higher than many expected. Therefore, adding sort of fuel to the fire of my God, inflation's here and it's going to be huge. So there's that to consider. Uh, those prints, while they may may be brief, are going to be higher than most expected. And the other thing is, I think a lot of people, at least, you know, my perception, at least, and certainly on, you know, 
via various media channels and whatever else. There's a lot of, well, here's inflation today. Oh, my God, it's gone tomorrow. And a lot of it is based purely on where the curve is and how the curve has moved, right? So when 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 the curve sold off or rather got bit up and 10 years sold off, you know, the yields came off and the 30 years came off, everyone's like, oh, okay, well, no inflation all of a sudden. They're not going to hike rates, this, that, and the other. Just wait till, you know, the 10 years back at 160 if and when and, and we'll have that conversation again about, my God, we've got inflation and it's not transitory. People just seem to have goldfish-like memories at the moment. And, <laughs> it did seem that way, didn't it? And, and they're just reactive, not so much objectively by taking a step back and having to think about what's actually happening, but they're, they're looking at what price is doing, what the curve is doing, and sort of inferring their view on the back of that, which is sort of not only counterintuitive, it's actually it's, it's backward in, to my mind. So, look, in a nutshell, I think, you know, that's my view on, on where we are. Globally, inflation, that's a different story because you've got various central banks and certainly in the EM space already raising rates. You've got talk of various other banks tapering. I mean, when you had you know, Bank of Canada essentially begin its tapering. There's talk of the RBA. Oh, frankly, who cares what the RBA is doing? But, I was you know, about to ask that. that. We've had a question about the RBA. So, yeah, we'll get back to that in a sec. Yeah. Well, I mean, while we're there, I mean, the RBA, look, they've committed to keeping rates where they are till whatever it is, mid-23 or thereabouts. They've also committed, at least rhetorically, to adjusting uh, post that if and when. Um, I still believe, you know, whether they like to admit it or not, that they are going to persist in, uh, you know, essentially yield curve control and targeting. The, the, the ammunition that they expend on that may change but, uh, and may be reduced somewhat, but I think, you know, the commitment's there. And... Anything and everything can happen between now, now and then. So, you know, even if they do sort of talk further about maybe talking about considering, you know, raising rates yeah. or, or whatever, look, you know, we're, we're two years away, you know, and, and a lot can happen. And, and that's sort of, you know, again, we'll, we'll get back to this maybe later in the show, but it, it sort of resonates with my perception at the beginning of the year of what everyone was talking about, you know, this being the golden age of, you know, a return to the roaring 20s and whatever else, where my perception was, I, I'm not I'm not refuting that, but I do think it's going to be stops and starts and fits and spatters rather than globally, away we go and it's all, it's all green shoots and watch out, here we come. And I think we're sort of starting to experience that, although maybe not in the same, in the same, uh, I suppose, way that I had maybe initially perceived it. But I, I think we're having that. Yeah, no, that's that's good. There is a trade there now, uh, dude. I've had a, the question that's come in from Tim Kelly, and also from Marco Abbott uh, was just whether the lockdown was going to change what the RBA was going to do next week. Anyone? No, no. That's no, all right. I mean, they <laughs> can't. Jesus, imagine if they did. Christ. <laughs> uh, it would be it would be quite a thing. Just to have a couple of days, and then Gladys would really cop it, wouldn't uh, wouldn't she? And our premier, I think that she's done a great job, but. She seems to be getting a little bit of flack uh, now for uh, for all the heat that she's given the other states, and then for that to affect monetary policy at a federal uh, at a national level uh, would probably be just a little bit too much to, to, to even envisage. So there is that. Now uh, re the markets on this one, uh, Colgo. I don't know if you wanted to shove anything in there, but I'm just about to do a quick uh, quick quick subject change. Well, um, 
I suppose I'm just going to reach for something that's kind of close to home at the moment because I'm reading again at the moment Richard Thaler's Misbehaving. Uh, for anybody who hasn't read it, you should. It's brilliant. Um, Thaler is the Nobel Prize winning uh, economist who basically is the father of behavioral economics. He's a very funny writer, um, very interesting. And he did all this work that started out uh, working with uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Um, uh, the guys who were behind prospect theory and Kahneman, as you all know, is like the psych- psychologist who does you know thinking fast and slow, thinking fast and slow, and he has a new book out yep. called Noise. Um, but um, Thaler is so much fun because he his whole thing is like um, talking about how inadequate economic models are, um, and the whole thing about uh, markets not being uh, efficient. Um, and how people um, behave uh, wildly, people's observed behavior in day-to-day life is wildly out of step with economic models. And his whole uh, proposition is, and the the foundation of his life's work is, well, look, economists say we should behave like this, but everywhere I look, nobody nobody actually behaves like that. that. So so how do we explain it? And and so the, the whole thing at the moment... Uh, in terms of trying to predict um, uh, people's behavior and then the future path of growth as a consequence of that, um, to your point, Ken, as you as I heard you talking about, you know the the thirty the thirty years and ten years, nobody knows what it's gonna what things are gonna look like in 10, <laughs> 10 or thirty years from now, right? Like, come on, you know um, the the way things have shaken out in so many areas. Uh, when um, you look at industry, um, uh, in the industry mix, the increasing threat of regulation by the Biden administration against um, the world's biggest companies um, that are so such huge weight in um, in the indexes that they're in, um, you know, nobody knows how that's going to play out. Um, uh, there's a, there's so much golf to play on it, I suppose, if you like. Um, uh, there is a lot of movement around China um, and uh, its uh, position in the world, if you like, its trade relationships, um, its diplomatic relationships, um, and um, you know. So there's there's uh, and then there's this whole question of what the central banks are going to do now. Um, the whole thing about the the I suppose the Fed. Um, I think the simplest way to think about the Fed for me anyway, uh, you know, for, for a person of little brain um, is uh, basically that they're not simply dovish all the time now. So dovishness is not the default setting anymore for the Fed. It's come off, right? So they may be moving towards just a, a toward, towards something that is a little bit more hawkish um, and that changes the picture. Um, changes the picture for the U.S. dollar. Uh, changes the picture for the Aussie dollar. I thought the move in the Aussie dollar um, after the Fed last time was uh, particularly spectacular. I think it wiped a few cents off it. Actually, um, it's of course it get, it's regained it all, right? <laughs> um, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think where where markets are now obviously looks sensible. Um, that you know, there's going to be kind of steady kind of level of inflation, but low uh, over the next little while, and we are in for a uh, a spurt of 
growth in the next few years, which will probably um, lead to some rate hikes, hence what we're seeing at the short end of the curve. We will get to where the actual trades uh, can occur at uh, straight after this. Open Trader, for professional traders and those who want to invest like a pro, from only $5 a trade, Open Trader. Uh, let us know if you want to know more about Open Trader. Happy to help you out with that one. But uh, yeah, thanks to our sponsors on that one. Now, uh, you were talking about the trade. Now, I've got a stat for you, for your boyos. Here we go. Now, the NASDAQ on Friday hit uh, another all-time high. Nothing too amazing, nothing too surprising. But um, it's only occasional that the NASDAQ hits a 52-week high. Um, it's a 52-week high. When, when the NASDAQ hits a 52-week high, when, and courtesy, thank you to Sentiment Trader, um, Twitter account, and those guys do some great work. So the NASDAQ hits the 52-week high when less than 50% of its members are above their 50-day moving average and less than 55% of its members are above its 200-day moving average. Now, we all know that the, the old expression about the 200-day, um, nothing good happens underneath your 200-day moving average. So to have about half of your constituents of, a, of an index which has hit an, a, a year high, that half of those um, half of those constituents aren't actually really, you know, pulling their weight and being up above the, the 200 day. And so is this those, because uh, is this because the big boppers are at all time highs? It's it's been dragged up by the big end of town. Like you, you like that's it's it's your obvious sort of villains that are in that one, and and they are some good ones. But when the, when you've had a situation like that before uh, over the last 20 years, it's only happened about six times. So um, it's happened this uh, this time. It happened on Friday. It happened. Uh, about early last year, so just before that 30% drop that we saw, it happened once in 2017. It, ha it was a 13% drop in 2015 when it happened and an 8% drop in the NASDAQ uh, when that happened in 2014. It's just a lack of breadth that you see across the market and it means that, that you know, you get you, if, if, if a couple of those generals, you know, when, when the generals stop marching is the expression, when, when a couple of those generals decide to stop marching or something happens or who knows what it could be, but, you know, that they, they're just maxed maxed out and they're just done with the buying. There's not a lot of support that's at the other side of the market to really keep the rest of the index up. That could happen. Uh, now, by the time this podcast gets out, you know, we're still going to be looking down the barrel of the end of financial year. The window dressing and all the, 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 the plumping may just be, be done. So if the NASDAQ just wanted to take a bit of a break, could be in the first week of the new financial year. I'm just saying that uh, it might just be worth – Moving your stops up on that one, and uh, and maybe having a little bit to, that's off there. But but this I do believe might be just more of the more of the sort of mood that we should be looking into in the mid cycle um, in the mid cycle sector. Can you got anything uh, just to throw it at you? Anything cooking at the moment with regards to what stage of the cycle that we're in, um, and how you see this reopening trade going? What uh, if if you've got any uh, got any ways to sort of uh, spice it up, spice up the portfolios, mate? Um, mate. Well, how can I put it? Oh, look, for all intents and purposes, I'm basically semi-retired and, and equities have never really been my bag. But it's funny, <laughs> I was having a, chat, having a chat to someone sort of tail end of last week and sort of brought to mind the fact that, you know, very often, you know, on financial TV and wherever else, you hear the question, you know, so, so what are the implications for stocks or what does this mean for the indices and this, that and the other? Honestly, I think that question has been redundant for probably the better part of four or more years. I mean... In the short, very short term, yeah, you might have the occasional blip down and obviously we saw what happened, you know, when, when COVID really hit the fan March, April of last year and, and whatnot. But net-net, in the environment that we face and, and find ourselves in over the course of the last, well, 
certainly near on decade, you're hard pressed to, to really think that equities are going to do much else than go up. And I know that's that's very, very blasé and it's a throwaway line, but realistically, when, when you've got no other viable mattress in town to park your cash under, and if you are genuinely looking at it over the, not even medium, but certainly longer-term horizon, then, yeah, I mean, yeah, just just whack it in stocks, you know. You're not really going to go that, that poorly. It's just... It's just a case of, yeah, be, be selective and then probably just play it at the index level and, you know, you'll be all right type thing. Um, I think what's interesting to me is, as, as is the case every single year, you know, the consensus trade going into the year certainly on the, on the FX side was, well, the dollar, the, the greenback, the US dollar is going to fall entirely out of bed. It's going to, you know, hit new lows and it's just going to keep going, keep going. And, you know, there's only one way and that's south for the, for the greenback. And sure enough, there was an element of that probably, you know, Jan, Feb this year, although it probably leveled out mid to late Feb. And since then, all, all the all the Dixie, the, the dollar index has done, is trade a range. Um, and yet people are still out there sort of losing their minds over the fact that, oh, my God, the dollar's weaker or, oh, my God, the dollar's stronger. What does this mean? What is that? Um, that's about it. I mean, I, my perception is I think we're having a bit of a, a, a rebound from the dollar strength post FOMC at the moment, so a bit of give back. But net net, I don't think that keeps going too much further. And then we settle into a range over the next probably four to six weeks over the summer. I you know, barring any sort of cataclysmic black, grey, white swans, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And uh, and we sort of bump along. Um so yeah, do I have any hard and fast views on on trades? No, not really. Cargo mate, uh the area that you were that you would be able to help us out with is 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 in this reopening trade. Do you still see that that China and the U.S. and uh, you know to to a smaller extent that, that that at home do you still see that those reopening trades are still on track and and can still sort of take us in the direction, or do you think it's going to be a bit more clumpier and uh, and a bit choppier? Uh, I think. Look, um, I'm not a forecaster, not a trader, um, but. Um, I do think definitely um, we're looking at um, an ongoing period of very cheap money for a long time, right? So Yeah, keep to the... Yep. Uh, and I do think one thing that has changed uh, has been how governments think about fiscal uh, levers. Um, so central banks you know, for the last six years or so have been just banging on about how fiscal needed to come to the party. Um, they were exhausted in terms of um, stimulus options. And governments have now, you know, um, uh, you know, after the period of austerity, do you remember uh, after after the GFC, like austerity was this, um, this whole approach that governments around the world were taking to amending uh, their finances. Now, granted, um, rates are a little bit lower um, than they were then, but they weren't like materially higher post GFC. Like they were like a couple of hundred basis points or something. Um, but uh, I suppose that feels like, um, uh, I mean, a couple of hundred basis points from here, if you added it on would, <laughs> would blow up the economy, the global economy pretty quickly. Yeah. But, um, uh, but, uh, uh, but, but where we are, I mean, I, I'm just looking at corporate, corporate debt um you know uh like even 
mid-rated corporate bonds are still trading at like three and a half, three percent, you know. Um, so three and a half percent. So look, debt is really, really cheap. So there's two things going on. Money is 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 cheap to get, um, and governments are able to come in, I think, and are, are smarter um, and have learned a lot about how to step in and uh, put a floor under what look, might look like um, an economic meltdown. Not a market meltdown, but an economic uh, meltdown. Uh, and I think that is a very, very welcome thing. But I do think one thing that, you know, while the fiscal stuff is different, um, the other thing that's different about this recession has been that, you remember before this uh, downturn, there was a lot of talk globally about zombie companies, yeah. um, companies that shouldn't exist, that had managed to kind of stay afloat because of cheap money, um, and uh, normally in a recession, uh, a recession would take those players out, right? So, you know, you'd have your creative destruction at work and um, uh, bad or underperforming or unprofitable companies would go under and um, they would um, uh, make way for new entrants, right? Where you get your job growth and, um, you know, confidence and all of that kind of stuff. Um this um, may be a certainly, look, I don't want to, um, by, by any stretch of the imagination, um, downplay um, the fact that a lot of companies did go bust last year. Uh, uh, and of course, a lot of people were out of work. Um, but we haven't had massive bankruptcies. We haven't had banks coming out saying, we have these really bad debts on our books now. And these big, chunky liabilities um, from these companies that are, uh, in a very bad place, they you know yeah. putting huge provisions on the books that hasn't happened this time around. So that for me creates a sort of interesting question of: Is it that companies are adapting and finding new ways to do business and survive, or is it just that uh, this uh, world we're in, where uh, it's easy to get funding, easy to borrow to keep going through the next quarter, um, all of that kind of thing? is helping companies, uh, is leading to companies just behaving uh, differently uh, and um, getting time and runway uh, to be able to evolve their business model so that they can start making money properly again. Um, um, so I, I can answer that for you, Colgo, if, if I may. It's, it's To my mind, it, it's definitely the latter. And it's it's not just the easy money money environment. It's actually, well, it's, it's the first derivative of the fact that it's easy money because you've got... Uh, junk uh, debt being so popular that it's practically not even junk debt anymore. And so, what we saw pre-GFC in, in the in the mass financialization of the various instruments and, and the ingenuity that went into CDOs and CLS and CD something else squared and cubed, uh, you've got an element of that happening, but not even to the same degree now because everyone's everyone's. You know, and has been for the last decade or more, even in the aftermath of the GFC, when rates were, you know, a couple of years later, were probably a couple of hundred basis points higher than they are now. I mean, traditionally, they're still incredibly low rates, right? So if you're looking for yield, you want some bang for your buck. And so this this mass, um, you know, uh, shift in terms of trying to financialize everything and, and ingenuity and all of that um, leads to these products. So. You, these companies are always going to be able to lend or rather borrow money at what has traditionally or even by current standards been incredibly cheap. So uh, 
I don't think, and there isn't necessarily an, an, even a push for them to finally evolve, you know, to, 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 to you know, plaster over their, their cash flow woes until such time as their business model can evolve. I think for a lot of them, to be honest, uh, there's no there's no motivation to evolve the business model. So either they eventually, 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 whenever the hell that is, do go bust, or they just putter along and still make a bit of money because, well, you know, cost of financing is so low. So why why bother evolving? Because no one's got a gun to their head. Mm. That's, uh, that's that's that I believe will be part of the finding out that happens. I think it's about three or four hundred companies that are in Russell, because um, it's going to be the smaller that, that that are in the Russell Thousand Index that are at that zombie level of of only making enough to be able to pay what interest they do have. So any change in that is going to make it sort of it's going to make it choppier. Which which brings me to the point that I just wanted to have and. Um, I'll, I'll give you guys the last one, but this is the last thing that I really wanted to say today, just on, on where I see the move, the next move going into, into quality from being a, a part of that value trade and a part of that recovery trade and the rebuilding trade. And as we move into this next this next cycle, uh, the, the FT um, did run a, a beautiful little article and it was on the uh, it was on the long view, which is always fantastic to read, but they had just the quote at the back, the CIO of the US fundamental active equity at BlackRock um, was interviewed uh, and it was it, it was really just a beautiful little comment that he had here. BlackRock's benchmark of high-quality companies is currently trading at its largest discount to the Russell 1000 index in more than two decades. We're still very value-tilted, but we're starting to dial it back and look at the quality trade. So while he expects that value and cyclical shares have not fully exhausted their run, the clock is ticking. Once the economy shifts into a mid-cycle phase, history shows the quality shares start outperforming. Dispirito, that's him, argues a more normal pace of economic growth should prompt a more cautious approach from investors as the risks around taxes, inflation, and the timing of a Fed policy shift become clearer. As a long-term investor, owning quality will pay off. So that, I uh, end quote. I think that the, that the move from just being generic and in an index and in the recovery and being okay with those companies now has to has to start being rotated off and it's, and it's time to make sure that you've got those companies that have got a high return on equity earning stability and low financial leverage as being the three generally accepted definitions of quality and uh, and make sure that the, those are the ways that your that your portfolios tilt in that direction that being said gentlemen last words and uh, and then we'll uh, we'll thank the sponsors and thank the ball boys and uh, and wrap it up yeah can we just talk about the guys down the south coast with the deer yeah go for it mate What's i i, I, I Oh, Ken! If Ken hasn't heard this, I want to hear Ken hear this for the first time. So, this, Colgo, can you just take this, bring it up? Bring it up. This would have happened while you were sleeping, Ken. Oh, please. Um, so, <laughs> so at the uh, daily uh, media conference featuring the pre- the state premier uh, Gladys Berejiklian and then the chief health officer and then the police commissioner. And set, the, set the scene, the stage, and, and it's also got the Auslan interpreter as well, Ken. You know yeah. the way they do the, the daily press conferences, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they've got the Auslan interpreter and uh, and then the police commissioner gets up and tells him, told him very concisely, I have to hand it to him, uh, telling it more concisely than I am now. But the best straight man in the industry. Right? He gets up and yeah. he says, uh, unbelievably, we had two individuals who, I'm just going <laughs> to say to my own, these two guys, say in my own language, sorry, these two guys were on the beach. They say they were sunbaking naked, right? <laughs> and they said... Not that there's anything wrong with that. They, they, this is what the cop said. They claim to have been startled by a deer and they... <laughs> They subsequently ran into a forest where they were later 
they had to call the SES to get rescued because they get lost. And they were um, spoken to by police who decided that they didn't have a reasonable excuse for being out of the house and were fined a thousand dollars. So, 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 but, but it's just, I'm like, come on, there's more to this story. These guys were found, these guys were found naked in a forest after getting lost. Um, one of them was partially closed, apparently. But with clothes, but it's like yeah. So so, and you were in you're you're naked in the forest. Why? Uh, we were sunbaking on the beach, and well, a deer chased us. In the middle us. of winter. <laughs> but, but, but all, all I want to know is: has anyone uh, quoted the deer in this? Has anyone had a chat to the deer? Caught <coughs> up with what it thought was going on. <laughs> I, I would like the, to. Uh, know. We, we, we all learned a great deal of Auslan uh, seeing the seeing the interpreter do an amazing job of of straight facing this this incredible story go yeah. through yeah we all know we all know what um the um <clears throat> we all know the Auslan for uh, startled startled and deer and um uh, what was the other one nudist or naked, uh, naked. yeah yeah <laughs> so we, we all know the Auslan for that now Thank you to the those those aren't those Auslan guys great they that's a very very tough job uh, sometimes and very essential uh, service and awesome awesome to see them for, for for a time with the bushfires and going into the pandemic I thought there's uh, you know that the, the Auslan interpreter shortage was was going to be a real thing so um, but they have done they have done a, a, an incredible job with some uh, with some nonsensical things that have got a, that have been tried to be explained to people that. People really can't understand what's going on at the best of times, and you've got to try and uh, you got to try and decipher that. So, uh, Ken, anything to add, mate? Uh, no, just uh, wishing all of you guys down there uh, good luck, and hopefully uh, they sort things out. I think one, one thing we didn't mention was, uh, and it doesn't seem to, from what I've seen, get much press. But what's going on in the uh, Northern Territory with the miners up there? I, I think I think when we speak next for the next show or whenever it may be, I think we need to touch on that. Because, you mean the, uh, the uh, you mean the the COVID cases? Yeah, yeah. So. so so what happened was a guy flew from Victoria to Brisbane before his mine. Uh, he went out to for his um, fly-in trip to the mine, and mm. he stayed in a quarantine hotel because there was rules in Queensland about coming up from Victoria. He caught COVID in the quarantine hotel from an international traveller who was on the same floor, went out to the mine where he worked with 900 other people who they're frantically trying to contact now. He definitely gave it to a couple of other people. Um, uh, but there's about 16, I think last last I heard, there's about 16 people that they can't find. Now, just thinking about this, the crews who are out there in the, working in the mines and they get back to Darwin or Perth or wherever they go back to, um, and they're uncontactable. Like, there's plenty of reasons why you'd be uncontactable for a few days after working in a mine. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So um, let's uh, let's hope they get hold of them um, and that there that there's no rogue cases running around out there. So hopefully that that sort of gets itself sorted out as as well as all the other bits and pieces going on uh, in New South Wales and elsewhere. So, but no, that's uh, that's probably it from me at the moment. Just uh, heading. Headlong into uh, into summer over here. Oh, fantastic! It's, uh, that is uh, that is good to know, Ken. Uh, well, that being that that being the show, Open Trader for professional traders and those who want to invest like a pro. 
For $95 a trade, uh, let us know if you need to know anything about uh, Open Trader. Fantastic little platform, and thank you very much to them as well for uh, for helping us out. Uh, always thankful for the sponsors too. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave the review wherever you get your podcasts. Five star, five star, five star. Please, you can find us on iTunes at the Bip Show. We're on Twitter for some reason. It's at the underscore Bip underscore Show, and we're on Facebook too. Search for the Bip Show. Myself, I've, uh, as I mentioned, I've got a website that we're just putting more bits and pieces onto it, all the little extras and goodies that we can't get onto in the show, including, and I'm doing a, a, a new thing, which is which has been quite popular, uh, calling it the trade that paid, um, because I just like rhyming stuff, and it's where uh, any folks just might want to go and have a look and, and see any trades. And if he lets you talk to him at Ken Vexler, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show, five stars, like I said. The show is produced by Rick Salter. G'day, Rick, and we will catch you next time. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, James. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, lads. Been a pleasure. Thanks for everyone. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.